Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fallout Podcast episode 90. Very excited tonight to have a, a special guest, Una Baines, who some of you, maybe all of you, will have heard of before through your love of the fall. If you haven't, your band, get off. Um, <laughs> and and also joined, as always, by our good friends, Pip, Billy, Willie Rugby. How are you doing, Phil? How are you doing, I'm very well, considering I'm on the week run-up now to uh, performance of Hey Luciani. I've oh, not yes. had enough to break it down yet. No, yeah, well, I'll ask you about that in a, in a minute. And uh, Lord Sage Temple's off in the mountains, and Pemberton Shyamalan Walker. Alistair, how are you handling things? Hey, as you do, you just get on with it, don't you? Like you, with your influenza. I know. Is, oh, I wasn't going to mention that, but people can probably tell I'm I, uh, struggling to, even more than usual, to make <laughs> the words stick together. Tiny Tim's probably not chipping in on this point because he doesn't actually. Know. Actually, oh, yeah. he has got a question for Una, which I will I will plant at just the right moment. Fantastic. Uh, a little bit maybe for Michael and the other people. Uh, and I, I know I've gone against not only the conventions of podcasting, but just general social niceties by introducing someone but not speaking to them so hello una sorry hiya. about that hiya no worries I'm how are you doing I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> well we're very happy to have you on board and be at play yeah no worries thanks and uh, we'll play some songs and we'll talk a little bit about him well one thing i'll say to people listening now is there's a, there's a couple of very good interviews with una that uh that you can have a listen to as well or brothers fantastic I had another good listen to that one today um uh, put them all together and you get a, a, a 360 holographic image of uh, what we're talking <laughs> about <laughs> uh also i got um uh, I got your comic this week. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. Um, oh, yeah, it's part one of the, you know, I'm not going to call chronological in our, our discussion at all because that's not uh, that's not how my uh, mind works necessarily. But I, I think I really, really enjoyed reading it. And because it's pre-fall stuff, right? So it's a, a brand new perspective for, for me and for, I guess, most fall fans. And th- this part in it, uh, and don't give me spoilers if you're planning on doing part two anytime soon. But um, this wasn't known to me that, that you know, you were listening to some uh, rock and roll records at your house with Mark. I'm not sure how long this was before the, the, the fall or the outsiders got, got going. But yeah, going... yeah, before the fall. Right. We were about, I think, 16, 17. It covers from when I met Mark when I was 16. Uh, the thing that happened in the comic with my next-door neighbours, that's when I think we would have been about 17 then. So your next-door neighbours were playing Van Morrison and then Mark goes next-door and before you know it, he's the lead singer of the band. What what was going on there? Yeah, well, my friend Jared Healy, who lived next-door, he, he had a band and they were playing Brown Eyed Girl over and over and over again and Mark was getting really rattled saying God you know playing the shit over and over again and he went round knocked on the door and just said uh, hey lads you know could I come and could I come and join you I think you're really good and all that and um, and said do you know this song Sweet Jane and he, he kind of hummed the riff and told him how to play it and then there he is singing it it's responsive. he never changed really that kind of that's kind of the way he seems to operate with the fall. Well, with the fall after the original fall. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, like in those earlier songs, was it more written? Uh, I guess standard band style. Well, no, it's like Tony Field, the bass player, wrote uh, "Last Orders." He wrote the, the complete song, the riff, the lyric. Martin did the same. I wrote 
little bits of music, but I wrote some lyrics as well. So we all kind of contributed, but Mark was the most prolific, or his songs were the ones that we did the most, <laughs> even even in the very old line. Did you have a clear idea about what it was going to sound like at that stage? Not a clue. It was just <laughs> completely experimental, which is what the joy of it was. Yeah. Like, we're doing songs like Repetition, and Mark really loved the idea of doing it for a long time, so it really pissed people off. <laughs> Things like that were, <laughs> I thought were very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that comes maybe out of that crowd rock scene as well, where it, this, or Sister Rain, stuff like that, where you, they're playing 40-minute versions yeah. of the same song. Well, yeah, but, but the lyrics are kind of contrary to that concept, really, because it's talking about the absolute mind-boggling mundanity of repetition, you know, like in hospitals where you just sat staring at a television that's not working properly, which what it used to be like back then. I don't want to change. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's talking about different different specs of repetition. It's not kind of glorifying it, but in a way, yeah, I think it's multi-layered. It is a really strange manifesto of a song, Repetition. It's We puzzled over it with the words, didn't we, when we were talking about it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think you're right, and it comes from a lot of different directions, but the, the direction that I guess we're referring to here, which is is the irony, isn't it, of, of playing a repetitive song that, that yeah. to annoy people, is that it's commenting on, on I guess, psychiatric hospitals, specifically press, which, which um, I know you were working at at the time, and um, you know, the, the lyrics here specifically that say they put electrodes in your brain and you're never the same. You don't dig repetition. Yeah, it's a manifesto, but it's not clear what <laughs> it's a manifesto about. Yeah, I think that's the point, though, really, isn't it? It's kind of not, not clear because there's no clarity. There's no, like, definite answers and ways out. It's just you have to mull these things over and think about, figure stuff out. I think, I think a lot of his writing was about that. It was about provoking people to question stuff and think about yeah let's have, a, if, let's have a listen to the first couple of songs if you don't mind which from you from your list we, we got stepping out off the electric circus ep but i'm also going to play a bit of dresden dolls which is it says from it's a rehearsal tape i'm not really sure maybe i'll ask you about yeah. that in a so let's have a bit of a listen Stepping out and stepping out and 
Nice, uh, but punk rock, yeah. So Dresden Dolls, which, uh, yeah, the, you had a heavy involvement in, I understand, and, and stepping out from that uh, electric circus. So I wrote the lyrics to Dresden Dolls, stepping out was all that. But I just think it's great. I've not listened to this stuff for ages, and the energy is brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, well, Dresden Dolls, I, I was looking through this site called uh, the track record, and they reckon it, it was September 77 that when you when you played Dresden Dolls, and, and, and the lyric, Annotated Fall is fantastic. I steal pretty much everything from this podcast from that site. Uh, but here, here are the lyrics as they've got them. Dresden Dolls are back in style with a clockwork walk and a backward smile. Dresden Dolls don't hear a sound. They're programmed to jump up and down, up and down, round and round, tapping feet to formless sound on plastic bars they sit and pose count their fingers with their toes they sit and smile and drink and grin then they all get up again dressed in dolls and nazi boys dance arm in arm to formless noise where were you uh, coming from with those lyrics Una? well it's just a commentary really of maybe a lot of it to do with the media kind of promoting people gobbing uh you know say having a very negative attitude of all the music that was coming up. And then people had come to gigs and start spitting on people. That really didn't happen until the media kind of presented this negative image of, of what was going on. And also also how things can be dead fresh and questioning and, and inspiring, but then it can become like a cliche and and another kind of become another victim of, of the whole kind of system where it's a, it's another thing that's very manufactured and, you know, our kind of stance early on was quite anti fashion so, you know, and plus I couldn't afford drain pipes, so I had to wear my flares for all mm-hmm. um, And, yeah, and it was interesting seeing the, the kind of fashion that came out. I mean, I remember we were at the ranch bar and, we, you know, I used to wonder what were the women going to look like, you know, the sort of punk women when they arrived. I mean, it, it was a face. It was like, it was incredible, you know. They looked like women that's like, you wouldn't mess, you know, like ripped tights and short skirts and that makeup like Susie Sue and Spike, yeah. And they really did look amazing. And um, so, yeah, that kind of changed my attitude about the fashion thing because, uh, you know, I understood it was more about your, your own expression. I've heard a few people from the time say similar things like when it when it first started off it was very much about doing your own thing and then it, and then it got taken over by the the kind of malcolm mclaren movement yeah but we, we've got to be thankful to him in a way because of the, the sex pistols and his promotion of the new york dolls that was oh yeah i mean mclaren is you know as a divisive figure absolutely but you know we, we trying to avoid talking about the sex pistols gig when you talk about the fall is, is impossible right because it's you know everyone and their dog went to that gig and um <laughs> and, and formed a band after i think me and phil went when we were i think they took our nursery around there for the afternoon <laughs> but we were there for that so we, <laughs> and uh, we formed our first we are now we formed that first band that afternoon but um but it was it was clearly very very important though so like you know i've written down some keywords to keep me on track here but the outsiders was that that influence of that existentialism kind of like where you were coming from well tony Friel was the person who was reading camus and we thought the outsiders was a great name but there was another band called the outsiders so 
we chose it to the fall. The uh, story of the fall itself like, does have a lot of resonance with Worth of, with Smith's kind of take on things, but it's interesting that, that didn't necessarily come from him. Tony Friels, you know, obviously his, his name is around a lot in the early days, but I know almost nothing about him. But what, where does Tony fit into all this stuff? Well, how I remember him, when we first met him, he was uh, a really accomplished guitarist. When we, when we started to form a band, Mark was supposed to be the guitarist, but he never really got into it. And then Master became the guitarist, and uh, Tony moved on to bass. I don't know if Mark deliberately tried to not learn the guitar in order to become, you know, the singer, because I think Martin was going to be the original singer. Who knows? I mean, Martin's a fantastic guitarist, and, you know, Smith. Yeah found his place didn't he with his lyrics and his singing so i think it worked yeah. out for the best it did and um and, and your your keys were absolutely fundamental to the sound early on signature and i think you know when yvonne took over it was do you think it was deliberate to carry on your kind of style and sound no i think she, i think it had to be because it was a very short time to get somebody else involved when they were doing so many gigs and i I just really couldn't carry on anymore because I, I got very ill and I kept trying to carry on. I kept getting asked, can you just do one more gig? Uh, yeah. And I'd, I'd do that one more gig and sometimes I'd be looking at the keys and I didn't know which ones to took. You know, that's how out of it I was. I was like, you know, it took me about a year to get better um, and I was very sad to leave um, and I really wanted to play all those songs on The Witch Trials, which I'd already started learning. So, yeah, I was pretty upset, but there was nothing I could do. I physically, mentally couldn't do it anymore. It's really distinctive, that keyboard sound on the early chords. That sound, was that a deliberate decision, or was it just sort of <laughs> happenstance? <laughs> and what equipment was you using, Una? Well, it's a Snoopy keyboard. It was, it was the only one I could afford. It's one of the cheapest keyboards. And funnily enough, it got a review in sounds as one of the worst keyboards I'd ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and then that became perfect for the fall, really. But we hadn't. That wasn't my, that wasn't planned or anything. That's skin. I had to get a bank loan as well to buy that. I loved it. It had a sound on it called a spinette. It sounded like a fairground, and I really loved that sound. But we never managed to use that for anything. But yeah, I love that. Sound. I don't know where it is now. Nobody knows where it is. Yeah, they t I think. Um... The the story was there were two of them floating around at one time. Riley had one, and then there was one from the band. And I think Paul Lonely talks about using it right till it fell apart, and then uh, <laughs> end up in Mark's garage or something. I don't know, but it'd be nice to bring that out because now they're doing a house of all, uh, which is mostly is four members, right? Stephen, Paul, Hanley, and uh, Martin's in that. So maybe if they can track it down, they could pull it out for a few gigs. Um, I went to see them actually last week I had to bridge the house of all right what do you think of them I thought they were really good brilliant they can't go wrong can they really no it's, so, it, the, the songs are good we had Simon on last last week um, who's drumming along with Paul and yeah. um, I mean he's fantastic I mean the, you, you can't go yeah. wrong with that lineup and and um uh, album sounds great but um this is this list here the songs that uh I'm grilling you a bit here, and just tell me to stop if I'm. I'm no, no. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so looking at it. This is from Mark oh, to Tony in in the uh, beginning of January 1977. I mean, a lot yeah. of these songs at the top we we know, like Stepping Out and Psycho Mafia, but there's some Roll the Bones, which which pops up on some set lists. So you definitely played oh, them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna roll the bones. I don't remember. 
I don't remember a lot about that. Freak Show was one of Martin's songs. Right. A lot of them might have got changed. I'd, I'd like to know that because Freak Show was, I think, the very first song that Martin ever played to me. And I thought the lyrics were so good. The tune was brilliant. The riff, it was a bit kind of T-Rex and it was really good. Yeah, um, well, who knows if it popped up somewhere along the way or just one of those, uh, you know, lost lost gems. They followed a bunch of them along the way that never got recorded. But uh, Dresden Dolls, for example, didn't didn't get a, a proper recording or a proper release. We could have done a really good version of that in the studio. I, I thought it had a great riff. That yeah, was... the, the intro was brilliant. It sounds all right to me. I mean, yeah, if it's a rehearsal uh, recording, it's never going to be 100% perfect, but that's like... No, you know, it's, it's a, a good rock. recording, yeah. Definitely. The riff from, from Dresden Dolls is, is has a lot of similarity to uh, Serge Gainsbourg song called The Horse, which is which is worth checking out as well. It's very nice. Oh, I'll write that down. Do you see Tony these days? Is he still around? No, I think he lives in Buxton now. All right, well, you can ask him on that and see if he owes Serge a couple of quid uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all folk art isn't it we all we all get our ideas from somewhere I played Stepping Out earlier which is like from the uh, Electric Circus uh, LP 10 inch thing which was the first thing that I ever bought by the with the fall on it because it was, it was into it was getting into Joy Division I was about 14 and uh, that just cropped up on there I do remember reading in Dave Aslam's book about sort of like nightclubs and, and venues and stuff like that you, you did a little section about punk and uh, the electric Circus and described it as a, like a right shit all with like water running down the walls, that kind of thing. Have you got any memories of that? The uh, you know, like the gig scene at the time and the shittiest venues. And if you can think of one venue that was shitter than anywhere else, I'd be interested to know what it was. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't answer that. But the Electric Circus, I was so happy because that was where I grew up in Collier. And I couldn't believe that they, they had a punk venue there, that they opened it up and so many great bands played at the Electric Circus. I can't remember what it was called before. It had been a place that had been going for years and I just can't remember the name off the top. But yeah, it was a pretty rough area though. A lot of people would get beaten up around the south. That's the kind of place. I suppose yeah, he stood out as, as looking unusual in uh, the culture at the time. It was it was quite violent, really. Like the days when the football hooliganism were uh, well, not just rec- recreational violence was it was quite popular. Yeah, and you we used to get the national front turning up at gigs. Played a lot of rock against racism stuff. What struck me when I was you know re-listening to a lot of your stuff and, and your interviews is that you know community and um, politics and clearly it was very important to you then. And still is. What when it was a time when the National Front were coming to your gigs and stuff? How, how did you and the band deal with that stuff? It didn't happen a lot, but I can remember two times it happened where they come in and they'd throw bottles at us. And us being young and foolhardy, we'd just hide behind our amps and throw them back, you know. But I remember going to one of the, one of the National Front was doing some kind of a march with the NF in town, and they were completely surrounded by police, you know, police protection. And we all went to that, you know kind of booing them and stuff. I mean, we used to go on a lot of demonstrations. That, I mean, there was a lot of political activity going on in Manchester at that time. Um, and the women's movement was very strong as well. There were lots and lots of women's groups challenging lots of things. It was, it was just, you know, challenging racism and everything. So, you know, it was a real hotbed of political activism in Manchester at that time. After that initial flurry, the, the band 
I would say, became less and less overtly political? Or is it just the time? Or do you think, you know, yourself, Martin and um, Tony, the influence you had then made the band more political? I mean, things like the war against intelligence, you know, I think that's a very political statement. I think it's very, very true. And when I first heard that title, I just thought, how brilliant is that? It just sums it up. And uh, I think maybe it was more subtle, but I don't think it ever really changed. And also, there's always been a female influence in, in the fall. I think Mark realised that that was an important element to it, uh, that it was more balanced. But yeah. it all came, came across as still you know, quite insightful, political, and you know, just maybe in a different way. What was the talk like inside the band at the time? What sort of things were you talking about? I mean, both like politically and what was influencing what you were writing and stuff? Well, I was very much challenging sex. That was... Mm. That was the thing that was very, it was like once you'd opened your eyes to it, it was, it was quite, um, you couldn't close them again. And it was very kind of depressing in a way, but so much to challenge. I mean, I think, I'm not sure when it came into being that it was illegal to rape your wife. I'm mm. not sure. Should have done a bit of research. For example, we used to go to a pub in Whitefield. We always used to go on a Sunday afternoon sometimes and play darts and have a drink. Mm-hmm. And I was told, when I went to do my round, I was told I could only drink a half, I wasn't allowed to drink a pint. Um, worked out it was half a pea, more expensive to buy two halves a pint. And, you know, we challenged the guy, he was an ex-cop. Yeah, yeah. And my friend, Jane McIver, brought him to court over sex discrimination. And he just completely ignored it and he put all these posters up around his pub with cartoons of women slouching on, on the bar saying beer makes women fat and ugly. And the whole like bar was just full of these posters. He completely ignored I don't think he ever got in trouble for it or anything. But there's so many things that were kind of considered normal, you know, like people... Yeah, yeah. Put, grabbing you at work, mm. shouting things at you. It, it was a pretty vile thing and, and it had to be challenged. There was no two ways about it. You know, it had to be challenged. And if you did challenge it, you just got called off. It's completely yeah. backwards. It is, I mean, if you're looking at some, some episodes of Bullseye and some shit that Jim Bowen comes out with all Bob. Even worse, Les Dawson. And the women's groups that, you know, we used to call them consciousness raising at some, but it was talking about what was going on for women, um, but not only where we were in England, but what was going on for women all around the world. Things like um, there was a contraceptive injection called Depo-Provera, which was proven to be very dangerous. So it was banned in this country. So what did they do? They shook it out to developing countries. Mm. Things like Nestle encouraging women who were living in poverty to use their dried milk and then the instructions weren't written um, clearly in the, in the language being sold to and children were dying of dehydration and so you know all these things were going on and we were learning about them that's what the groups were about I mean we had some men partners of women in the group who thought what we were doing was talking about them personally but what we were talking about was political it wasn't a, and a lot of men took it very defensively if you criticize sexism they took it on on themselves as it was a direct attack on them but we were talking about something that was more pervasive and also 
how the whole thing was really detrimental to men as well. It wasn't just detrimental to women. You know, it was like divisive. It was dividing men and women. We were not working together. That's how it works. It divides so that you don't work together to make the changes, to make the world a better place, for want of a better way of describing it. And I regretted saying that the fall went political as soon as I came out of my mouth because it was like all the fall fans shouting at me. But It's a different kind of political angle, isn't it? It, it's not like making party political points. It's about making points about the politics of life, isn't it? And about how yeah. people come together and the different sort of hierarchies that, that come out of that. Yeah, exactly. And hierarchies are the way we've been kind of conditioned to look at the world in competitiveness. And there's only one winner. And, you know, there's no the idea of collective people working together, supporting each other to bring out the best in everybody. It's very much discouraged because it doesn't work for the people in power. They know that. They know that ordinary people are a threat to the hierarchy. So they want that division because they want to hang on to the power and the wealth and they won't let go of it or change. Would it be fair to say you lean a bit to the left then, Una? A bit to the left. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm a socialist. I really like Jeremy Corbyn. I liked what he wants to do. Uh, actually, there's going to be a big kind of conference thing going on late September, early October in Manchester. And uh, Mick Lynch and Jeremy Corbyn are going to be there. There's going to be loads of performers, different things. I'm definitely going to get involved in that, go on the rallies and stuff. That sounds like a friend's meeting host, do. Yeah, some of it's at the Deaf Institute. I only read about it today, so I've not got all the details in my head, but um, it's a lot of different things over a few days. Because the Tories, I don't know if they've got the nerve on this Manchester, you know, but foolhardy that they are. There's going to be a big protest outside when they're actually having the conference. Absolutely disgusting what's happening. Beyond belief that they flaunt it in front of us, they don't even try and hide it anymore. The corruption. It's like, oh yeah, so we had parties in lockdown. So what? While people be with their loved ones who were dying, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I won't go too far down that because I get really, really angry. But um, yeah, it can all the corruption is going to implode upon itself. It can't. It's not sustainable. Something has to happen. Turn the wheel to make a diff. You know. And they just don't report what's going on there. They don't report all the strikes and properly that are going on. They took Mick Lynch off the air because nobody can get one over on him. You know, that's why, why they don't show his interviews anymore. It, it's one of the things the fall's always been really good at, is at pointing out these these little social things that are going on. So, like, I mean, our media nowadays is so curated, isn't it? There's a very yeah. particular story that we're all supposed to kind of buy into. It's also, we were talking about uh, the music industry earlier on, that's another thing that The Fall's always been relentlessly critical of, in yeah. a way that even, even a lot of bands that started off with that punk DIY kind of ethic, they just sort of get subsumed into the... Yeah, capitalist face of the music industry, don't they? It is. It's very exploitative, though, isn't it? The, the music industry, like. Well, the thing is, though, there's a lot of small labels all over the place. What I think is great that's happening in music is that there's so much going on underneath the mainstream. There's so much now, more than I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Different groups, different venues. I mean, we've got the Pier Hat in Manchester. And the guy who runs that, he's brought in bands from 
all over the world, but bands that only want to play small venues, they want to play small, intimate venues. And there's a whole movement going on that's vibrant and amazing and so experimental that it's like, well, at least there's something incredible that's actually happening now, you know. The grassroots movement's still existing and, and the internet being a way to share, I mean, it has its drawbacks, absolutely, and has been subsumed by, by major corporations in, in many ways. But the fact that we have things that band come where we can release our music we can meet over these kind of places and, and make this podcast that just some some clowns from Wigan who decide that they're going to do a podcast about the fall and we can do it technology has freed us in a lot of those ways and then and I think that's tied into some of that grassroots Brilliant. yeah definitely absolutely I mean this is my kind of worry is that eventually they'll start to be able to find a way to control it and, and stop communicating. And I'm sure they're working on it now as I speak. And I've, I've got right my suspicions now. that Phil is one of them. And we keep watching mm-hmm. him closely. We <laughs> <laughs> think he's in here to try and shut us down. Traitor. <laughs> Mr. Well, let me play a couple tracks. So I'm going to I'm gonna play some of your recent stuff. Here. I'm going to play uh, Iggy Pop by, by your band Poppycock. And I think... We're going to get uh, some Blue Orchid stuff though as well, aren't we? Oh, it's bloods of time to put out stuff I'll tell you what i'll do at the end of anything we haven't got to i'll edit it in randomly in the middle of the, the podcast it doesn't matter I'll do. <laughs> we'll be able to list it there's so much good stuff but let me play a bit of a couple of um poppycock tunes play a bit of uh, Lizard Man. This is a version you sent us. I think it's different to the one I, I saw on uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah, this is the one that's going on the album. Yeah, it's very nice. Let's have a listen. So, so we heard Iggy Pop 
and uh, Lizardman, who both by your, your current band, Poppycock. Poppycock playing, I guess, this week at the Presswitch Festival, the day before we yeah. do our thing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's next Friday. Actually, the artwork for Iggy Pop, Mark's sister, Suzanne, did that. Yeah, I noticed that. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. I mean, I love, yeah, I love, love Suzanne's stuff. It's grotesque and some even some of the latest yeah. stuff about Remit. But yeah, yeah it's do you, are you are you friends with her or are you just Yeah, we're friends. I've not seen her for a while though. Um to get in touch with her quite soon. Lizardman's actually comes from a dream I had about the fall. Um Lizardman is Mark. It's dedicated it's gonna be dedicated to Mark on the album. I told him about it and he looked a bit shocked when I said lizard man. But I said no and I explained what it was. It's all right. What, what was your relationship like with him in the, in those later years? Did you bump into him often or? Yeah, we used to meet up and go for a drink occasionally. And uh, it was like, you know, when you've got a friend and you've not seen him for years, but it's as if just a continuum. It was just, just able to talk the same way we always spoke to each other, so. That was nice, actually. Yeah. That's nice. I mean, I had no idea. It's like once um, people kind of leave our, our version of the story, we only know the official fall story. Once people go their ways, it's kind of like you have to read between the lines to see what happens. Um, <laughs> um, what's kind of your plans with Poppycock? And, and how does that kind of relate to what we talked about before with the grassroots? Well, we've just finished an album. Well, I'll tell you how long we've been doing this album. Pascal Legrand did the cover for it in 2014. Okay. <laughs> that's all right it's as good as worth the wait i'm sure uh, people were quite interested and then after about two or three years completely lost interest uh and then we we thought it might never happen and it's only very recently been finished but we're over the moon with it you know we're very happy and uh we're going to be doing nearly every song off it uh, at Presswitch festival the lineups changed a few times over the years but like the guitarist i'm working with Heather, we've worked together now for nine years in this band. On our basis, she's been with us for a long time. Um, one of the singers was one of the singers in The Fate. And I've okay. been in a band with her. She was in a band called Beyond the Glass that was her and her family were all amazing singers. And I was in that for about six years. So, yeah, so there is a lot of connection there with people over a long period of time. Yeah, I think you mentioned that uh... Beneath the glass, when you went talk to the Hanleys, it seems very interesting. So, so they were kind of was that similar to some of the stuff you did with the Fates? Yeah, but none of it's released, right? Yeah, none of it's released. A lot of it. Everybody in, in the band wrote songs, and they were all all pretty good. And a lot of it was uh, soul, bluesy yeah. soul, a bit jazzy, but then a couple of punky things as well. So, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a real pleasure doing that. I learned a lot. Who came up with the sort of the, the lunar concept of having like a waxing side and a waning side to the album? Oh, it's because of a witch. Oh, right. Do you practice? <laughs> no, I'm not a member of a coven or anything like that. Right, right. No, no but um, originally they were in pagan, kind of pre-Christian times. It was 13 cycle, thirteen months in a year because it went off the lunar cycles. And then it was turned 13 as being an unlucky number, but I think that's patriarchal. I think 13 was just the natural rhythms of nature. And the patriarch is kind of anti-nature, isn't it? It's like wanting to control everything and make it do what it's told, whereas nature just does its thing. 
and you have to get in tune with the rhythms of nature rather than try to control because we are just a part of it at the end of the day we are just a part of it even though we fucked it up in the day then did you did you and mark have any conversations around because we we talk quite a bit about his interest in Emma james and macken and writers like that did yeah. you ever get in, into any of that yeah, we were really into kind of supernatural stuff. You know, the books we read and, you know, Arthur Machen and, I don't know, we read all sorts of stuff. Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, right. One of my favourite writers, Ursula Le Guin. We were reading at Orwell. Matt was a communist then. Yeah. Probably knew that wasn't a good tag to have moving into the bigger world, really. Moved to being a socialist and then whatever whatever was going on in those later years, we often refer to uh, that interview we did with Krishna and Guru Murphy, um, where he talks about his views on immigration and things like that. And he's a very complex chap in terms of his politics. <laughs> Hey, I remember bumping into John the Parsman in Charlton. Anyway, he said to me, Una, what the fuck? He said he said he's voted for Thatcher or something. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like, yeah, what the fuck, what? It was hard to say how much of it was that was him putting it on or, or kind of baiting people and how much of it was. Maybe that's referring to when the uh, Falklands War. And he, and, he, and he did say I'm voting for the Tories. It's fair to say he was a wind-up merchant as much as a controversialist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, without a doubt. But I remember I went to see him quite a few years after all that, and he looked quite nervous, and he said, I'm still a communist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, winks at you. <laughs> checks, the, checks the fridge door, all that stuff. Um <laughs> Let's have a listen to to some of the fate stuff, and then when we we can uh, we'll see where, where we go from there. Are you still okay for time for a bit, or yeah, I'm fine. Right, I've had good. my coffee, so nice, <laughs> good, good. Tears the world apart 
Beautiful. So that's the fight, Sheila, and she beats in my heart. It came out in '85, uh, I think, originally. Yeah. And, and then yeah. Andy Andy Votel put it back out on Finders Keepers a few years ago, which with Pip's yeah. version there. Was it a concept album, or, or was it just that there were themes running through it? It was a lot of half-written stuff that I'd written, and um, then everything my life at that time, everything you know, the blue orchid mask, and my mum had passed away. And all those things kind of, uh, when the Blue Orchid split up, I felt this really strong need. I had to get do this work. And I asked Jeff Travis, I said, I've got this album. It was a bit of a thing, I'd have. But I said, um, it's just like the Blue Orchids. <laughs> and he said, okay. And I think it was a very cheap budget. And if it hadn't been for Tony, probably would have done it because he gave us loads. Of- yeah, he engineered it. His studio was, I mean, over Wally Range in Manchester. He was in uh, Old Trafford, which is just around the corner. I just bumped into him at the shop and he told me he lived he lived there and he had a little studio. And then when it came up, I asked him, yeah, it was great. And we went in there, uh, we made up half of it in the studio. Um, we were drinking herbal tea and making big pot stew to keep us going. And uh, yeah, so... Like the drumming and stuff was all improvised. So, yeah, yeah, it was great. It was such a creative thing to work on. It's really good. You know, I'm sure Jeff Travis, if he heard it, it was he would have caught on quickly that it doesn't sound anything like the Low Orchids. He didn't. He didn't think it was up to par, and he didn't want it to be released on Rough Trade, which is why it's on Taboo Records. It's a name I made up. That's that's fucking ridiculous. We should get him. What's he thinking? What was he thinking? But I mean, I, th- I think, as you said, on the on the old brother, he was too busy worrying about the Smiths than thinking about quality music at that point. But whatever, it's his loss. What, no, he's a sweet, sweet guy. Don't put him down. He did pay for it. <laughs> Listen, I don't know him. But um, no, I, I mean, he did a fantastic thing for the music industry. Rough Trade's one of the best record levels. We had Mayo Thompson on here a while back, and I think he produced one of the Blue Orchids. Did you Did you meet first him? Did single. You? Yeah, yeah, he was in the studio, produced our first single. Yeah, he was great. He was such a great guy. Yeah, very, very uh, large character, very uh, passionate yeah. about music. The cover art for the, the album is, is really distinctive. What's the story? The story really is menstruation is just something that all women experience and the idea of it being outside, it was to show that it's a part of nature and, you know, there's actually a thing now about bleeding into the earth, about women going out into nature and bleeding into the earth and letting that blood go back into the earth. But it, it was all the idea of it being, instead of it being, because it's been considered, it's been like a taboo subject. I mean, yeah, they've, yeah. Only just, they've only just started making the blood red on adverts instead of blue, you know, on tampon adverts and that. It's like blue blood, and it's like, who yeah. has blue blood? But now it's become a lot more real about what it is. The green veil represents nature and the blood going into the earth that we're it's just nature. I mean it's a fantastic record. It's it's wonderful. Thank it, you. Is that, is that something you'd ever return back to that much more folky, especially the a cappella stuff? Yeah, we have done it a couple of times. I mean uh, in recent years we've done twice I think we've done Fury album, nearly everything on it. Um, but I would like to do the whole thing, the, the absolute whole thing with all the whistle flutes on it. Oh, that would be superb. The, the voices are just are just so beautiful on the album. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they are, aren't they? They're great. Mm. 
Um, uh, Julie, who sings with us, Poppycock, um, she's got a fantastic voice. She's, uh, yeah, she's one of the women on, on the fate. Mm. Her sister Janet also has done some singing. With, um, yeah, yeah, all the women, women who've been singers got amazing voice. I love the fact that when you put it on as well, it's and you get this when you've got the vinyl, I think, rather than listening to it any other way, but it really sort of takes you on a journey. Uh, I, I love the fact that it's an album that you can put on like that and that it's not just a collection of tracks, that it's it, it feels, regardless of how it came together, it feels like this really coherent kind of story that's being told and it's almost like one of those albums that kind of finishes where it starts and starts where it finishes it could just continue playing in this lovely cycle that's so lovely sir thank you top notch good stuff let let me ask you about eric the ferret eric mcgann (laughs) i don't know if he wants his real name revealing so i won't we all knew him as Eric anyway. Okay. Uh, yeah, he played with the fall for a bit. As I was having the breakdown, he, he kind of came with the fall. Just, so I did do a few gigs with him in the fall, and later on he joined the Blue Orchid as bass player. So me and Martin, and then Eric joined, and then, then we found Toby, who played with Ludus. Great band, yeah, yeah. Well, Linda did the photograph of Fury album. Okay. And it was and it was her veil that she'd lent me to do that shoot. Nice. Yeah, I mean, they were a great band. You keep, you hear them pop in and out of all the stories around Manchester at that time. Um, yeah. Can we maybe have a listen to some of the Blue Orchid songs that, that you put on your list? But that first seven-inch of the Flood and Disney Boys is phenomenal. I mean, I, I love the Blue Orchids. I think it's a fantastic band. Before I get gushed too much, can we, let's have a listen to... Let's have a listen. Phil's on, Phil's on mute. He's missed his chance. I'm playing some songs before you say anything. Bad education and work and no looking back. It's great, isn't it? There's a great version by uh, Aztec Hammer. Already framed it, oh, a brilliant yeah. version of it. Yeah.
Beautiful. I think that's my favorite Blue Orchid song. Bad education, work, peel sessions, and no looking back. I don't know what to ask you. In the greatest songs, what, what do you think about them? Uh, yeah, I love those songs. I just thought they were brilliant. Really, I loved it. How does it compare the the, the two bands and your own? I guess your own projects as well, Una. How does the the writing and the recording differ between the the fall and the blue orchids and I don't really make comparisons. I just think they're all what they are in their own right. Yeah, you can't because how can you compare them? The, yeah, I thought the fall were brilliant. I mean, that's kind of why you cut your teeth. For me, it was. I was only there for a short while, and then I felt like I really kind of developed in the blue orchids with the with my keyboard. Yeah, um, and it was a real joy doing all those melodies and stuff. And you know, I still get a goose when I listen to it. I mean, I don't listen to it very often, so it is always quite special to do. Yeah. There's a lot in it. There's a lot kind of... There were very young people. There's a, a lot of, you know, that severe to serene line is uh, very true. I, I remember you talking about the difference in your keys from the fall to the Blue Orchids, and they're on that no looking back. You know, there's a big epic kind of, like, keys that are right at the front of the sound. Did you, did you feel kind of like the the keyboards played a different function in the blue orc building that sound in a different way yeah you couldn't really hear me in the fall the keyboards are very much you just got a, a hint of it every now and again really but the blue orchids i felt like i was really expressing you know myself through you know we were using richer sounds like the organ sound which i've always loved you know like all those golden nuggets stuff b52s and all that i've oh, always yeah. loved all that sound yes yeah, so it was great being able to experiment with all that it was brilliant when you were learning how to to play how, how much of it is self-taught and what kind of sort of like musical theory do you use or anything <laughs> like that <laughs> um have you heard something called uh heart and soul Okay. You know the one I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I knew how to play that, so everything I know is better. It's a good starting point, you know, the universe to explore in those chords. What, polystyrene? Yeah, she was playing it. I was like, oh my God. It's like she's playing that that tune. It was like, wow. But but definitely that wasn't the case by the time you got to the Blue Orchid. She was definitely much more complex and melodic stuff going on yeah but it's all a development of that really that was the route yeah oh, step stepped on some as well and you, <laughs> a duet of that nice <laughs> that'll get you through most gigs to be honest <laughs> <laughs> but didn't you know you played god save the queen didn't you as well you got you have that one in your repertoire oh I was so excited about doing that the squat. I had the full spots on the keyboard. So it was like, you know, da, 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 pew, pew, all these explosions going off. And then somebody, after after a little while, somebody went, get on with it. Exactly. Like Jim, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, the kind of Mancunian version. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we would be amiss without mentioning a certain German lady in this story. So if you don't mind, could I play a couple of Nico tracks and then oh, maybe yeah. pick pick your brain on, on your interactions with her? Yeah, please. All right. Oh, this is a Lou Reed song. I played mm-hmm. I played Janitor of Lunacy because I, I think I mean, uh, talking about your influences and you mentioned Eco and the Velvet Underground and then of course that version of Femme Fatale which which does cite the Blue Orchids on it so uh, I, I guess and those are your keys they're in the background maybe and... yeah it was it was because I've tried to find copies of uh, bootlegs of uh, when we played with her but I've actually got one now. Yeah, and I remember that keyboard. It was just such a pleasure playing music. It was, well, it's like a pinch, pinch myself, you know, my dream is real. Because you know? <laughs> we used to listen to Nico at Mark's mum and dad's when we were, you know, teenagers. And, um, you know, I never thought you'd meet her or anything like that. And the I loved story her music. About Nico and her travels, you know, our Warhol, and then she's with Dylan, and then she's with Jim Morrison, and then she ends up in Manchester, you know, staying with John yeah. Cooper Clark, and, and then. And... But playing with yourself, it's such a mad, mad journey. But um Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, she liked she liked Manchester. I mean, you know, she hung out in pubs and Hume and stuff. Uh, there's a book called You Are Beauty You Are Alone about Nico. And Iggy Pop said that um people in the future will realise like her brilliance, like they're kinda of not ready for her work. I mean, it's so gothic, isn't it? Her yeah. before gothic, you know, before gothic music really and 
She's and, and somebody in a second language could write Janice Lunacy. They're just brilliant. It's such such heavy music. If you listen to that album, Desert Shore, so weird and so far ahead of its time and just so so well, I think heavy. gothic is the perfect word for it, isn't it? In like a literary sense, like them gothic novels where they are built up and it's baroque and there's so much kind of there's shadows and there's things going around in the shadows and it's like she's got it, it's got a real range very deep and incredibly high yeah. some really high notes there's like a bit of an unspoken connection as well between manchester and german music anyway isn't there with things like craft work and kraut rock and those kind of influences being obviously big on the fall and joy division and all those kind of big bands yeah well we all used to listen to can a lot we really love the drumming with can Dave of Suzuki played at the Carpenters near me, mm. and um, I didn't manage to get to see that, but they did a thing, a documentary on him. Is it called Energy? And it, that's it, Energy. We had him on a while back. He came by and uh, we had a chat with him. Oh. He's a very cheeky and interesting chap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was really good. It showed the gig that they played at the Carton Club. But then he was on um, on the bit on a big screen. You could talk to him, you know, with his partner. And I was like, "Oh my god, that's really him!" Because I was in a bit of a fangirl with a lot of yeah. people, and it was like, "Oh my god," you know. But uh, his journey was absolutely terrifying, really. I mean, he was in hospital for a very long time. Oh yeah, but he's still here, you know. And he's still mm-hmm. doing stuff. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, well, I think we've listened to most of the tracks you sent us. I've got a couple that we can play out. We got Roush, Rumble and Frightened from, I guess, that, like we said, that was the era that you'd learned those songs. But then yeah. they went in the studio and they went and, and um, they recorded them for Witch Trials pretty much as yeah. you'd been practicing them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Was it when you've when you spent time in the studio, are there any, are there any producers that you've particularly enjoyed working with? Well, yeah, it was great working with Tony. Yeah, at the minute, actually, it's been a friend and um, a sound engineer I've been working with on the Poppycock album. Uh, they've both been great. Janet was at home, Manos Sarantides, brilliant to work with. Just creative people, that's the thing. It's like, mm. I just want to work with people who are genuinely uh, creative and, uh, and into it. And that, that's it, really. That's the only requirement. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing what you think of what we've done with Hey Luciani then. That we're, uh, we're putting on on Saturday at Presswich. I'll let Phil do his little advert uh, now. Yeah, I wanted to go to that, but I think it's sold out. Um, oh, you can still come in. Don't worry. We, we definitely got a ticket for you. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I've never seen it. Weird thing is, you know, when I was a bit mad, I was writing a lot of stuff about those people like uh, Moreau and the Pope. Mm. Uh, just had all these mad ideas because I used to have a fantasy about shooting Pope. Who uh, hasn't? <laughs> but realizing that you can't shoot an ideology, they just pop another one up. And also, I'm, I'm really not into violence, you know, but at that time, I thought, you know, this man's got to stop. But yes, yeah, so I was writing a lot of stuff about, uh, is it General Moreau? I don't even know. If- not sure about, about him. The, the story in Mark's play is about the, here's the book. It's based on this book. It's about the assassination by uh, uh, by the the, the curia the, and the um, Freemasons to uh, get rid of the Pope because he was like, leaning too far left and getting uh, wanting to get ah. the, get his hands on the Vatican bank and sort it out and get. Um, 
and it was also entering to discussions with uh, about um, artificial contraception and all kinds of ideas that were that were <laughs> maybe the uh, right wing or the center of the Roman Catholic Church weren't really so happy about. So the story is that a couple of weeks in, one night he just. Uh, just didn't wake up the next morning and so we need a new pope. <laughs> so, oh, right, okay. What's that book called, sorry? It's called In, in God's Name. It's quite an interesting one. Um, Mark, as you would expect, took a lot of liberties with this, with, with his story. And, oh, um, <laughs> should be Should be a lot of fun. But Phil, why don't you do an advert now for it? This is going out the week after the play, so it doesn't matter. But Phil, tell, do an advert <laughs> for the play. And it, yeah, it's sold out as well. So the, They're both sold out. Yeah, yeah sure. We've got, a, yeah. we've got a handful of tickets to one side for ex-fall members. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. No, that'd be great. I'm going to do my best to get to that. We'd love to see you there, and that'd be great. See, that I've always been fascinated by that play and what it's about. Yeah. Well, thanks, Una, very much for coming by. Yeah. It's was delightful well, to see you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Well, we'd love to have you again at some point in the future as well, if you can ever make time for us. Yeah, maybe when the album's... Uh... Oh, that'd be great, yeah. yeah. Maybe we could play The Flood then as well. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Thank all right. You. Well, take care, and um, okay. I'm going to play some songs now to play us out, so everyone can just go their merry way. And thank you very much. Have a good, all good right. day, everyone. Bye. See you, Luna. Thank you. See you. Bye. See you. Bye. We are frightened. What oh. 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 Christmas? Santa never comes for junkies. Ah!